Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. In 1970, Walt Disney Productions released an animated movie about a high society opera singer in Paris who owns an elegant pedigreed cat named Duchess. And the opera singer passes away and leaves her multi-million dollar estate to Duchess the cat and her three little kittens. And the storyline of the movie follows this highbrow family of wealthy cats as the opera singer's butler tries to steal their inheritance from them. And and as far as movies go, it scores uh, 64% on Rotten Tomatoes and 7.1 on IMDb. But the real genius of the movie, as far as I'm concerned, is in its title. It's called The Aristocats. And this is a brilliant title because the movie features this high society family of wealthy cats. And in the, in the real world, the world in which we, we live, high society wealthy people are sometimes called aristocrats. But because the movie is about a family of cats, Disney dropped the, the second R from aristocrat and called it the aristocats. Very clever. Our sermon text has nothing to do with feline aristocats, but it has a lot to do with human aristocrats. Amos is prophesying to a bunch of high society, wealthy and influential families in Israel. They're the aristocrats of their day. And what we learn about these aristocrats is that they have a false sense of security. Because the nation of Israel was enjoying a peace, a, a time of peace, and because the nation of Israel uh, the, the national economy was booming, and because their personal wealth was increasing, and because luxury and opulence were at an all-time high in Israel, these aristocrats thought that they were secure in the world. God is obviously very happy with them, they concluded. For what, why else would they be enjoying such prosperity? After all, the aristocrats engaged in elaborate and costly religious ceremonies. They contributed lots of money to the temple, and they brought lots of sacrifices to the altar, and they attended all the religious feasts and festivals. But as we saw back in Amos chapter 5, all of these things contributed to one big case of misplaced confidence. Why? Because all of this religious activity was insincere and hypocritical. That is to say, it was all by it, it was not by faith. It was not by faith. The people were not coming to worship with a broken and contrite heart that seeks to glory and, and honor the Lord. Rather, they were performing these religious exercises for the sake of their fellow man. It was all a pretense. They were they were doing what they were doing in order to show to their fellow man how religious they are. And we know this because God, speaking through Amos, has been repeatedly pointing this out throughout the book of Amos. That is to say, God has repeatedly exposed the hypocrisy of these aristocrats. They pretended to be super pious when they brought their offerings to the temple on a day of worship. 
But then they would turn around and take advantage of the poor and the needy on the other six days of the week. And so God says to them in Amos 5.12, I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, affliction, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. The unrepented hypocrisy of these aristocrats was so detestable to God that he went on to announce uh, or pronounce a woe to them in Amos 5.18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. Now, now the word woe is an interjection. It's often used by God's prophets to introduce a prophetic oracle of doom or a prophetic oracle of devastation. And that's how Amos is using it back in chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. He then goes on to tell them that the day of the Lord is not going to be a good thing for them. It's going to be a tragedy for them. Well, that wasn't the only woe that Amos pronounced to the aristocrats in, in Israel. There are two more woes that follow here in, in, in chapter 6, which is our sermon text. The first woe is in verse 1. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion, who trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. What's unexpected about this woe is that Amos mentions Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. This is unexpected because Amos was sent by God to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so when we read that Amos pronounces a woe upon those who are at ease in Zion, it makes us wonder why he's including people from the southern kingdom in this woe. Amos uh, then goes on to also include those who trust in Mount Samaria, which is understandable because Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. But why mention those who are at ease in Zion? This isn't such a difficult question to answer once we understand what this particular woe is really about, what it's decrying. Amos is declaring doom and destruction on the covenant people of God whose trust is not in God, but in their political system. It's a woe pronounced upon the covenant people of God whose security is established in the strength of their capital city. The capital cities of Israel and Judah were deemed to be virtually impregnable. And from a human perspective, they, they were highly fortified cities. That is true. Samaria was able to keep the besieging uh, Assyrian army at bay for three years, three years before she finally met doom, the doom which Amos is pronouncing here in this book. And a century and a half later, when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, it took 18 months for the Babylonian armies to capture the city of Jerusalem. And this is because Jerusalem and Samaria were both strategically defended by the mountains that surrounded each of these cities. The terrain and topography, along with the massive walls and the national militaries, made a, a ready defense for these cities. And the covenant people of God found their security in those cities, in that defense. In both the northern and southern kingdoms, the people of God imagined themselves to be secure because of these cities. 
And so as Amos was addressing the people of the Northern Kingdom, he points out that they're not the only people of God who are guilty of this transgression. Their confidence in Samaria was no different than the Southern Kingdom's confidence in Jerusalem. In both cases, God's people had misplaced their confidence. In both cases, God's people are placing their trust in their political system rather than in God. And so the Lord pronounces a woe upon his covenant people. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. The fact that Judah is included in this woe doesn't mean that Amos was prophesying to Judah the context of the book of Amos makes it clear that he is only prophesying to Israel, only to the northern kingdom. Judah is included in this prophetic oracle of doom because God is exposing a sin which was not unique to Israel. It was a sinful betrayal of God when his people who lived in the southern kingdom placed their trust in Jerusalem rather than in the Lord. It was a sinful betrayal of God when the people who when his people who lived in the northern kingdom placed their trust in Samaria rather than in the Lord. And brothers and sisters, it is a sinful betrayal of God when his people who live in America place their trust in Washington, D.C. rather than in the Lord. If you listen to the political discourse among, amongst Christians today, you'll hear a lot of talk about you know, who the president is or who has the majority in the House or the Senate? But you don't always hear much about God's role in all of this. Certainly, there's nothing wrong with talking about the presidency or the balance of power in the House and Senate. But do we perceive these things, these entities, as the things which God is using to determine uh, what he is doing? Or do we perceive these entities as the very entities that determine the direction and fate of our nation, right? It's, it's one or the other. Either we perceive these entities, the presidency, the Senate, the House, or whatever uh, organizations are, are at power within our political system, do we perceive these entities to determine the direction and fate of our nation, or do we perceive these entities as being under the sovereign control of God, being used by him to accomplish everything that he intends to accomplish. That's the real issue. Are the political powers that exist in our nation right now the entities that determine the direction and fate of our nation, or does God determine the direction and fate of our nation using those entities? And when you listen to some Christians speak about politics, it's difficult to distinguish their statements from those of an atheist. They speak, these Christians, they speak as if everything depends upon who the president is, or everything depends upon who has the power in Washington, D.C. There's no acknowledgement that they're witnessing the unfolding plan of God's redemption and restoration of the world. That doesn't occur to them. That doesn't make it into the dialogue. God is not part of the political picture uh, from, from their perspective, even though they profess to be Christians, their politics are indistinguishable from an atheist who flat out denies the existence of God. President Trump right now will not concede that Joe Biden won the election. He wants a recount. Trump believes he actually won the, the election 
and that his administration will continue for another four years. Biden, on the other hand, has already began to make preparations for a transition to a, a new administration on January 20. Now, as a Christian, I have to say that Trump is correct, but not for the reasons that Trump is giving. Come January 20, the administration is not going to change. King Jesus will continue to rule over our nation just as he has for the past 45 or 46 US presidencies. It's been the perennial temptation of God's people to put their trust in political systems. This has been the same, uh, or I should say the shame and disgrace of many generations of God's covenant people. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, the people of God putting more confidence in a human king to rule over them rather than the triune God who rules over them. And this sinful betrayal of God came to its ultimate fruition in the New Testament when a generation of God's covenant people cried out, we have no king but Caesar, and then proceeded to demand the crucifixion of the very king over all creation. That is the extent of where this betrayal leads. So let this serve as a demonstration of the spiritual blindness that can come upon God's people when we fail to live in acknowledgement of who is really in control. What administration really rules over this world? There will never be a new administration ruling over us. King Jesus will always be governing over this nation as well as this world. In his governance, he will place different human rulers in different roles at different times to accomplish what he intends to accomplish, but we will never put our trust in these human rulers or in capital cities or in any other part of the political system. Rather, our trust must always be in the triune God. Psalm 20 verse 7 states this truth perfectly. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. The northern kingdom of Israel, however, had forgotten the name of the Lord their God. And they were trusting in Samaria. And so Amos attempts to burst this balloon of false security by turning their attention to a couple of their neighboring cities in northern Syria and Philistia. He tells them to go over to Kauna and see. And from there, go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Then Amos asks, rather scornfully, are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Now, the kingdoms that Amos is speaking about are all kingdoms that had fallen. As great and strong as those kingdoms were in their prime, and as impenetrable as the people of those kingdoms once thought themselves to be, they were eventually overthrown. They were eventually reduced to nothing. So in asking these questions, Amos is challenging Israel to consider if these other kingdoms had fallen, then what makes the northern kingdom of Israel so, so confident that they also will not fall? The image our sermon text is communicating to us is that these aristocrats whose heads are so swollen with national pride are unable to correctly discern the power of the real force that is coming against them, the real force 
that is coming against them. That real force, of course, is, is not the Assyrians. It's God. The Assyrians are merely the instrument that God will use to destroy the northern kingdom. Yet the aristocrats are so confident in their political security that they think this will, will never happen. They will never be defeated. In spite of the fact that Amos had previously prophesied their doom and destruction by the hand of God, these high society elitists thought that the, that, that, that day would never come. So Amos pronounces yet another woe. Look at verse 3. Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who caused the seat of violence to come near. Verses 4, 5, and 6 give us more definition of the, the image our sermon text is painting of these prideful and self-confident aristocrats. Like an episode of the lifestyles of the rich and famous, Amos takes us into the aristocrats' mansions and lets us see how they live. Their furniture is the costliest. They lie on beds of ivory. They stretch themselves out on luxurious couches, it says in verse 4. And this is where the wives of these wealthy men, those cows of Bashan that Amos wrote about back in chapter 3, this is where those, those cows of Bashan lazily pass their days. While their husbands are out making money by oppressing the poor, these women are lounging around on ivory couches doing whatever the equivalent was back then of watching soap operas on TV or of watching TikTok videos on their phones. The biblical label that God so often applies to this type of activity or this type of inactivity is the label sluggard. And not only were they sluggards, these aristocrats, but they were also gluttons. Verse 4 says that they eat lambs from the flock and the calves from the midst of the stalls. And this speaks to the abundance of extravagant food that they consumed. The fatted lamb was an item for a feast. Uh, it was used to mark the celebration of a special occasion. Think of the parable Jesus told of the prodigal son. When the son returned home, the father ordered the fatted lamb to be prepared for a celebratory feast. And what Amos is showing us is that these aristocrats in Israel were feasting all the time. They didn't reserve the fatted calf for only those, those unique and special occasions which they would celebrate. Their life was a continual celebration. It was a continual feast. They had a feast every day of the week. They indulged themselves in champagne wishes and caviar dreams every day. Moreover, they were wine bibbers. Verse 6 says that they drank wine from bowls, not cups, not glasses, but bowls. Think of the quantity of wine they must have been drinking. Remember what we read about these real housewives of Israel back in chapter 4? Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are in the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. Are you seeing the picture? The picture that's being painted here by our sermon text? It should be looking a lot like a Hollywood celebrity's life. Life was a constant series of parties for these aristocrats. They ate fancy food. They drank lots of wine. Verse 5 tells us that uh, they were entertained with singing 
and different kinds of musical instruments. In other words, they hired a DJ to enliven their parties and they anointed themselves with the finest perfumes and oils. Now in giving us this tour of the lifestyles of these rich and famous, Amos reserves the most condemning piece of information for the end, for the, for the last. They are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph, Amos writes at the end of verse 6. They are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Now, don't miss the significance of the name Joseph here. Who was Joseph? Well, he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, right? But more specifically, Joseph was the son of Jacob who was abused and mistreated by his own brothers, sold into slavery by his very own people. Well, that's what's going on in Israel at the time of Amos. The aristocrats were abusing and mistreating their fellow Jews. They were taking advantage of their own people. They were afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. And so God calls them out on their sin. They are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph, meaning these wicked aristocrats experience no guilt, no remorse for the injustices they commit against their very own kindred, against their very own people. And in this regard, they are just like Joseph's brothers. What God is declaring through Amos is that Israel is broken. She's broken morally and she's broken spiritually. And very soon, God warns, Israel is going to be broken physically and politically by an onslaught of Assyrians who will bring all manner of destruction upon Israel. Yet these indolent and unrepentant aristocrats will not heed this warning. They put far off the day of doom, it says in verse 3. Why do they put far off the day of doom? Because they don't really believe what Amos is telling them. They think they are okay with God. They think they are just fine. Nothing bad is going to happen to them. Samaria is a strong capital city. It's strategically protected by the surrounding mountains. It has strong defensive walls. The economy in Israel is good. Everything is going to be just fine. Therefore, God says at the beginning of verse 7, now, those of us who read and study the Bible know that when God is dealing with stubbornly prideful people, when he says, therefore, something unpleasant is about to be declared. And such is the case in verse 7. Therefore, they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. And God has already declared back in chapter 4 how the, the real housewives of Israel are going to be drugged through gaping holes in a city wall by fish hooks inserted into their noses and lips. God is now repeating himself here in our sermon text, only he adds a little bit of new information. He's saying that when the Assyrians carry off the people of Israel into the miseries of exile, these wealthy aristocrat families are going to be the first ones to go. These pampered gluttons who love to recline on ivory couches are going to be the first people who will be brutally taken captive by the Assyrians. God then confirms this prophecy by swearing an oath. Verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor 
the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Now, what does the Lord mean when he says he hates the palaces of Jacob? Remember that Jacob is Israel, right? That's what God changed Jacob's name to back in Genesis 35. So God is saying that he hates the palaces of his people Israel. And, and, and the palaces, as we've just seen, are these luxurious homes that the aristocrats took such pride in. Recognize that God is not saying that he hates palaces. He does not say that he hates palaces. Rather, he says he hates the aristocrats' palaces. And this is an important distinction to make because some people might be inclined to read this and think that God hates every display of wealth and luxury. Not so. God is a very generous God. When he chooses to bless people, it, it often pleases God to bless with an abundance of blessing. And when that blessing that he chooses to give to certain people takes the form of economic wealth, then luxury and palaces are part of his intended blessing. So it's not palaces that God is expressing his hatred for in verse 8. Rather, it is the palaces of the aristocrats. And the reason for this shouldn't be very difficult for us to discern. The aristocrats' palaces, along with all the all that was in them, the wine, the delicacies, the music, the fine furnishings, the fancy oils, all of these things were bought and paid for by money that was extorted from the poor and needy in Israel. In other words, those palaces were built upon cruelty and injustice. Back in Amos 3.10, God had already said that these same aristocrats store up violence and robbery in their palaces. They store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Now, this is why the Lord hates their palaces. And this is the key to understanding the entire book of Amos. God did not send Amos to the northern kingdom to effect a political revolution. This was not an attempt to bring about a change in the, the political administration. Amos is not saying, down with the aristocracy, out with the old, in with the new. Rather, the message Amos is bringing to the northern kingdom is the exhortation to return to God. If you, if you recall, that was the message that was emphasized back in chapter 4. Five times in a row, God said to Israel, I did such and such for you, yet you have not returned to me. Yet you have not returned to me. Yet you have not returned to me. And so the message Amos is bringing to the northern kingdom consists of Israel's desperate need to return to God. The message also includes the exhortation to seek good and not evil. That's what Amos said in 5.14. Seek good and not evil that you may live so that the Lord God of hosts will be with you. The message that Amos was, was given by God to bring to the northern kingdom also includes the exhortation to uphold justice in the land. That's what Amos said in 524. But let justice run down like, a, like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. The core objection to the aristocrats in Israel, therefore, is not that they were wealthy, 
but that they acquired their wealth by means of injustice and they felt no guilt or shame because of it. That they acquired their wealth by means of injustice and they felt no guilt or shame about what they had done to their fellow brethren. And consequently, this hardness of heart, this pride and arrogance and self-confidence drove them or, or disallowed them from uh, uh, acknowledging their sin and repentance to God. We learn from this that God requires passion for justice to, to, to burn within the souls of his people. God demands that we turn away from all that is evil and that we pursue only that which is good. And when we discover that we've transgressed the law of God, that we've done what he said not to do or haven't done what he said we ought to do, then God mercifully allows us to humble ourselves in repentance and receive his forgiveness. That, brothers and sisters, is the most glorious part about the whole thing. That is the most glorious part about the whole thing. It's not exceptional that we would do what God tells us to do, for that's what we are required to do. Jesus said in Luke 17.10, So likewise you, when you have done all the things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So it's not an exceptional thing that we would do what is our duty to do. Nor is it an exceptional thing that we would transgress the law of God, for that is sin. That is rebellion. There's nothing glorious about sin and rebellion. But what is exceptional and what is glorious is the Lord's gift of mercy to us when we have sinned. When we've transgressed the holiness of God, he has graciously given us the privilege to become forgiven, to be forgiven of our sins through repentance in Jesus Christ. God didn't need to do that. He had no obligation to make a way for you and me to escape the consequences of our sin. But because God is merciful, he extended forgiveness to sinners through the atonement that was accomplished by the Messiah. And the evidence of our forgiveness is repentance. When a sinner humbles himself in repentance for his sins, then God supernaturally communicates his promise of pardon to that person's soul. God gives to that person the peace of knowing that the sin which has created a separation between man and God has been atoned for by the blood of the Messiah. And the wrath of God toward the sinner has been appeased, therefore. The wrath of God toward the sinner has been appeased. God is no longer angry with the redeemed sinner. Rather, God delights in the redeemed sinner because the relationship has been reconciled through Jesus Christ, set aright by the blood and righteousness of Jesus. It's a terrible sin that the aristocrats built their wealth through the injustices committed against the poor. And it's a terrible sin that they put their hope and confidence in their political system. But had they repented of these sins when God exposed them through the ministry of Amos, then God would have forgiven them. He would have comforted them with the assurance of their pardon and reconciliation. But the aristocrats, being the stubborn people that they were, would not repent. They would, they would uh, not confess 
their transgressions to the Lord. And so God tells them through Amos that all of this must eventually come to an end. And in a graphic depiction of what this end will entail, Amos prophesies of a harassed and beleaguered city of Samaria, the very one in which so much trust and confidence is put. That great city of Samaria in which so much trust and confidence had been placed will become destitute. Verse 9, then it shall come to pass that if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. And when a relative of the dead with one who will bury the, burn the bodies, picks up the bodies and takes them out of the house, he will say to one inside the house, are there any more with you? Then someone will say, none. And he will say, hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord, for behold, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. Then in verse 14, but behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. The palaces that were once filled with laughter and feasting will now be full of dead men's bodies. A man is pictured crouching silently in a corner of one of these desolate mansions. A relative comes to carry out the bones of the dead and he asks the cowering survivor if he is alone or if there's anyone else alive in the house and the trembling man replies, no, hush, make no mention of the name of Jehovah. Now, why is this man so frightened by the name of Jehovah? Because it has been made evident, it has been made known to this man that Jehovah is responsible for bringing this terrible destruction upon Israel. It is Jehovah who has brought this terrible destruction upon Israel. Remember the rhetorical question that Amos asked back in chapter 3, verse 6? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? When the Assyrian calamity comes upon Israel, the handful of people who survive will be so terrified of the Lord that the very mention of his name will invoke fear, fear that he might come back to increase the calamity. And this is a description of what God promised to do to, 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 to do in and to Israel. By sending Amos to Israel ahead of this calamity, forecasting this calamity, God is giving Israel one more opportunity to repent. But they refused the grace of God. And so Jehovah followed through with his promise in 722 BC. In 722 BC, the Assyrians descended upon Israel and all the calamity that Amos has prophesied about came true. Now, if you take the word picture that Amos drew for us in this chapter, specifically in verses 9 through 14, not only does it forecast what, what, what literally happened in Israel, but it illustrates the spiritual and psychological torment that many people experience who have been raised in Christian homes. They've heard the gospel preached their whole lives. And yet, stubbornly, they persist to live a life of unrepented sin. They stubbornly persist to live a life of unrepented sin. 
it's not unusual for such a person to advance into the later years of his or her life and be utterly frightened at the thought of having to meet Jehovah. He or she likely won't feel comfortable sharing this with anybody else. After all, uh, this person has been trying to make people think he's a Christian his whole life. And so what's he supposed to do now in his old age? Admit that he never was? His stubborn pride won't let him do that. So he continues to act the part. But on the inside, he's terrified about his future. On the inside, he's like the man described in our sermon text. He's trembling in the corner of the palace, the very palace that has been built through sin and injustice. And all the things his idolatrous heart has pursued throughout the years are there in that palace. The ivory bed, the fancy couches, the musical instruments, the food, the wine. But all of these things have lost their value. They've lost their appeal. They've lost their significance to this frightened man because he's overwhelmed by the presence of death. He's lived long enough to witness the death of many people. He visits the graveyard and he sees names of people he was very familiar with back in the day. People he knows, people who are now gone. He knows that his own time is going to soon come upon him. And then the undeniable stench of death is in his nostrils. What has him cowering in the corner is the knowledge of God's wrath against sinners. That man's fear of Jehovah's punishment is so acute that he begs for silence. He begs that nobody speak the name of Jehovah, lest the Lord turn his wrath upon this man, like the legion of demons who questioned Jesus. Have you come here to torment us before our time? So this unrepentant man knows that there is a time in which he will be tormented. He knows it, it is just a matter of time before God condemns him to outer darkness. He knows these things, but he still will not seek reconciliation with God through repentance. Now, I'm not suggesting that this spiritual and psychological trauma that I just described are experienced by every unbeliever. I'm quite aware that many unbelievers go to their grave with the full assurance that there is no God, that there is no wrath, there is no hell, there's no condemnation of sinners. They, they, they confidently go to the grave, not even fearing what awaits them on the other side of death. But there's another category of person in this world. There's another category of unbelieving people who know much better than than those I just described. It's the man or woman who has been raised in a Christian home. It's the man or woman who has heard the gospel preached their whole life. It's the man or woman who has stubbornly persisted in unrepented sin. It's the person who has pushed the patience of God as far as any mortal man or woman possibly can, and they know it. They've received the Lord's tender mercies every day of their life. And yet they have failed to give him thanks. They've witnessed the mighty hand of God do marvelous things. And yet they failed to give him praise. They've received the love, uh, God's loving corrective chastening. And yet they failed to be trained by it. They've heard the good news of Jesus Christ proclaimed. And yet they failed to surrender their heart to him as Lord. 
They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Yet they've never been anything other than lukewarm professors of religion. And now they're terribly frightened that the Lord is going to spew them out of his mouth. If this even is remotely familiar to you, then you don't need to hear me impress upon you the dire situation you are in. You already know the dire situation you're in. What you need to hear is that God's mercy continues to be extended to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is still being offered to you even at this very moment. It doesn't matter that you've spent your entire life in rebellion to God. Where sin abounds, God's grace abounds even more. It doesn't matter that you've been playing the hypocrite for so long, pretending to be something that you're not. Where sin abounds, God's grace abounds much more. Nor does it matter that you think you'll disappoint the people you love if you humble yourself in repentance. You won't. That's, that, that's a foolish, foolish conception that is, that is the inspiration of the devil. If those people that you love are Christians, they will rejoice in your repentance. They will be delighted to know that you have surrendered yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Where sin abounds, God's grace abounds so much more. His offer of forgiveness through Christ Jesus is extended up until the very moment you pass away from this earth. So there is still time. Today is the day of salvation, the scriptures say to us. Do not put off for tomorrow what can be done for today, for you don't know if you have it tomorrow. But you, what you do know is that you have today. What you do know is you have a merciful God who has extended his forgiveness to you through Christ Jesus. And what you do know is that the people of God are the people of God by the grace of God. The people of God are the people of God by the grace of God. And the only thing good about any of us, any of us, is Christ in us? So the question I put to you today is, is Christ in you? And if he's not, then why not? What are you waiting for? What are you delaying for? What is your confidence in? Is your confidence in horses and chariots? Is it in political systems, capital buildings, the next administration, the past administration? Or is your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in control of all of these things? Apart from Christ, we are no better than those aristocrats that we were reading about in our sermon text. Apart from Christ, we are all condemned. Such an understanding should produce sincere humility in us, not fear, uh, uh, not, not frightening, not, not uh, um, an aversion to hearing the name of God, but rather it should produce severe, sincere humility in us, along with a deep sense of gratitude for God's kindness toward us. And we should take refuge in the name of Christ, not silence the, 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 the name of God. We should take refuge in the name of God. For if there is any refuge, it is in that name and that name alone. For there is no name under heaven by which men might be saved, but that of Christ Jesus. Amen. <music> This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. 
all material here within, unless otherwise noted. Copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at NathanClarkGeorge.com.